2: And then, as it must to all men, death came to Charles Foster Crane. And also, on April 12th, 1945, to
1: Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Right. If I, if I may, to give a little background, as we said two shows ago, on March 31st, FDR wrote to Stalin because Churchill prodded him to. On um, April 7th, Stalin wrote back, but basically didn't say anything. However, FDR does not get the letter until April 10th. He does not write back to Stalin because
2: two days later, he
1: is no more.
2: Age 63. 63. Roosevelt died. Took some people by surprise. Uh, Not everybody. There's there's a few people. I think his last meeting in the White House before he went to Warm Springs, Georgia Mm -hmm. to recuperate uh, was with General Lucius Clay who said afterwards to Jimmy Burns, we've been talking to a dead man. Um, But to a lot of other people, it came as a bit of a shock because, you know, he'd been sick a lot, <clears throat> up and down. He'd gone to Warm Springs on March 29th to recuperate. He'd been working himself pretty hard, obviously. He'd travelled all the way to Yalta, then had gone to yeah. the Middle East to meet with the Souds, um then come back, given his big speech in front of Congress. He was worn out. Um, Now, shortly before one o'clock on April 20, uh, April 12th, sorry, I think he'd been having his portrait painted earlier. Shortly before one o'clock, the butler came in to set the table for lunch. Roosevelt glanced at his watch and said, we have 15 minutes more to work. Then suddenly put his hand to his head in a quick, jerky manner. I have a terrific pain in the back of my head, he said. Then he slumped forward and collapsed and never regained consciousness. At 3.35 p.m., his doctor, Dr. Bruen, pronounced the president dead.
1: Damn. Yeah, supposedly uh, Eleanor, who was at a, a soul club in Washington, uh, she was at a benefit. She was obviously telephoned, and she, as far as we can tell, was caught unawares. And so I'm not sure if if she was the one who called Truman and told him to come to the White House quick smart.
2: I believe, yeah, I believe she was. Mm -hmm. Now, Truman, we have to keep in mind, had only been vice president for a few months at this stage. He was 60 years old, uh, gets summoned to the White House where he's informed by Eleanor that... The president is dead. Truman was sworn into office a few hours later. His first. I, I just want to say because
1: we're gonna we're gonna talk about his lack of experience. I didn't know this until I looked it up. He was not voted into any office until 1922, and that was a local office in his home state. Only until ni- not until 1934 does he become a senator. So this guy. Is there's just no way he's going to be able to fill FDR's shoes? He has no idea what's going on.
2: Barack Obama was only had only been a senator for what, like four years or something, became before he became president.
1: Right, but I would I would argue, argue that the situation was a bit different.
2: Yeah, yeah, Maybe a,
1: a war and things like that. But yeah.
2: well, yeah, no, he had a war to end and, uh, and a depression, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, let's not split hairs. Uh, yeah, we. I think in our next episode, uh, we should do a deep bio on um, Harry. Sure. The other Harry Truman, as I like to think of him, not the sheriff of the town of Twin Peaks in Washington, who is... <laughs> I,
1: I, was, uh, I was getting those confused.
2: ...who is a great guy. Um... Nor is it his brother, the other Truman from the Twin Peaks, the reboot, the return. No, this is the, uh, the, the original Harry Truman. Um, his first presidential act was to sign a proclamation declaring a day of mourning. Two million people lined the railroad tracks that the casket traveled on. To say goodbye to their president, just as I'm sure they will when President Trump dies in office, except they weren't lining up to throw eggs at the train. I was going to say
1: there's going to be a different look on our faces anyway. But you have to remember, not three months earlier, these a lot of these same people were lined up uh, when he was inaugurated for the fourth time to hear his speech about being friends with other countries, and now they're back three months later, obviously very different circumstances.
2: Yeah. One of his fierce critics, Senator Robert Taft of Ohio, called Roosevelt the greatest figure of our time who died a hero of the war, for he literally worked himself to death in the service of the American people.
1: I I just wonder, and of course we'll never know the answer, but if he hadn't taken the trip to Yalta in the Middle East... I wonder how much that wore him down, because you get the the sense in Yalta that there were times when he was out of it. Just how much longer would he have lived if he hadn't made that incredible journey?
2: Yeah. I mean, he obviously hadn't been well for a long time, but things sort of escalated after Yalta. Mm. Yeah. Churchill wrote in his memoirs that the news of FDR's death hit him like he'd been struck a physical blow. Yeah. I think no one, though, was more shocked and distressed by the news than Stalin.
1: Yeah, there goes his working partner. The one person he could actually get something done with, even though they disagreed about so much and they were getting on each other's nerves, they had a relationship, a a productive relationship.
2: Harriman was in Moscow and delivered the news to Stalin personally. Stalin was deeply distressed, according to Harriman, and he held Harriman's hand for about 30 seconds before asking him to sit down. Awkward. Yeah. um, First of all, he asked him if he wanted to dance. Harriman declined, (laughs) and Stalin said, maybe later then, and then asked him (laughs) to sit down. According to Harriman, Stalin said, President Roosevelt has died, but his cause must live on.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got to focus on because they've got so much of the up in the air right now. And there's a lot of tension right now. You have to keep that stuff going. But as we're about to find out, uh, Harriman is going to truly affect the the events between the United States and Russia in, in a very real way.
2: Yeah, indeed. But I think it's it's um, quite evident from Harriman's own account that Stalin was deeply saddened by the news of roosevelt's death i think if churchill had died stalin would have been laughing and drinking vodka and um you know doing a little jig yeah Yeah. toast yeah pissing on a photo of churchill (laughs) (laughs) but he, he he uh he had i think genuine affection and respect For Roosevelt, not enough respect that he's just going to let him get whatever he wants, but man-to-man love, respect.
1: I can work with this man.
2: um, During this meeting with Harriman, uh, he agreed to send Molotov to represent the Soviet Union at the first United Nations conference in San Francisco. As people may recall from a few episodes ago... They were arcing up over that, the burn incident when that happened. They said, Oh fuck the UN, we're not going. They threw a tantrum. Now Stalin in the moment is said, Okay, well, this the United Nations was Roosevelt's dream. Uh, he's he died before the first conference. Oh, like how That sucks. Yeah, how tragic is that? He yeah. didn't even get to see it take shape. So Stalin agrees that Molotov will attend and it will go ahead. Truman, back home, authorised Big Steady to make a statement to the press that his foreign policy would carry on without change of purpose or break in continuity
1: oh that's nice that that makes sense i don't know what i'm doing this guy's a master of international politics i'm going to keep it going because obviously it works for us we're we're, the war's almost over with i'm not going to change a thing you can count on me i'm a politician
2: yeah he actually um (laughs) truman i mean what people may know that he i think he owned like a um, uh, milk, milk. What do you call them over there? Like a corner store kind of thing. At one point, convenience store. I don't know. Yeah, he was a shopkeeper,
1: but Star Three. Yeah,
2: yes, he's saying nothing's going to change. But even on the day of Roosevelt's funeral, right? The New York Times was already reporting that friends of the new president believed mm. that his administration would take a course a little right of center. A bit, a, just a scooch. A sc- Just a little bit. Now, neither Churchill nor Stalin attended the funeral. Churchill wanted to. In his memoirs, he said, boom, I booked a plane straight away. I was going to get over there, pay my respects to my dear old friend. But his colleagues talked him out of it. They were like, dude... This is really important. You've just been at Yalta, motherfucker. How many holiday? He goes, it's not a holiday. Yeah, it's a holiday. No, it's a, Did you drink? Yeah. Did you eat? Yeah. Did you smoke cigars? I'm British. Yeah. Of course yeah. I drank. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I do... the
0: <laughs> forgot my turtle. <laughs> but I do that anyway, wherever I am. Here I do that. On a motherfucking plane. I had a hole cut in my compression suit to smoke a cigar. In
1: a box, with a fox, with a coat, (laughs) on a boat. I will drink and you will not stop there.
2: (laughs) We should do a whole Dr. Zeus book on Churchill. That'd be great. (laughs) Um, But he said also in his memoirs that he regretted his final decision to stay because he'd never even met Truman. Ooh. And attending the funeral would have given them a chance to talk. Of course, you and I know Churchill isn't going to matter much longer. He's on his way out as well. But uh, yeah, he didn't. Churchill wrote, and I think this is good.
0: He wrote, "It seemed to me extraordinary, especially during the last few months, that that Roosevelt had not made his deputy and potential successor thoroughly acquainted with the whole story and brought him into the decisions which were being taken." This proved of grave disadvantage to our affairs. There is no comparison between reading about events afterwards and living through them from hour to hour. In Mr. Eden, I had a colleague who knew everything and could at any moment take over the entire direction, although I was myself in good health and full activity. But the vice president of the United States steps at a bound from a position where he has little information and less power into supreme authority. How could Mr. Truman know and weigh the issues at stake at this climax of the war?
2: It is quite extraordinary. I mean, a vice president in peacetime is one thing, but a vice president in wartime... With a president who is ill, yeah, to not sh- know tonight. what's going but- on, it seems to me to be defeating the fucking purpose of having a vice president. Right.
1: Th- there should have been daily briefings, even if it was just a sheet of paper at the end of each day, or at the beginning of each day. He should have had a-, a modicum of an idea of what was going on. But that's not either how it was done at the time, or that's not how FDR operated. And I think it's more the latter.
2: So... Why do you think he kept this distance between himself and Truman?
1: Well, from what I've read about FDR, he kept everybody to a degree. At a distance, and no one ever really knew what he was thinking about anything, important or non-important. Um, he, he barely told his... Obviously, he didn't talk to his wife much because they had a strained relationship. He didn't tell his daughters too much, he, even though he liked their company. Um, but from what I can tell, that was just the type of person he was. He played things close to the, to the vest and um, did not like to have... Other people try to tell him what to do. He was just very sure of himself and knew what he wanted to do when and would implement it. And if people around him were confused about his next move, he was actually more than okay with that. I think it was just the way he conducted business.
2: But he had his inner circle. He had Harry Hopkins. He had James Burns. He had Ed Flynn. Uh, so he, 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 he had guys that he kept close and that I think he did share everything with and talk things through with his inner circle, but, uh, his vice president I, wasn't, one of those. wasn't one of them. I think Hopkins knew
1: more than anybody else, but as we know, Hopkins was dealing with stomach cancer. So you don't know what his ability to focus or his attendance was like uh but i think out of everybody else there might have been gaps in their knowledge and that's just that's just the way from what i could tell he seemed to operate but yeah absolutely truman has no idea he's just uh uh, just waiting in the wings for whatever i think he helped carry his state in the last election that was pretty much truman's contribution to fdr
2: And he had no experience in foreign policy, Truman. And we'll get into Truman's background more in the next episode. But this uh, meaning of uh, moving a little right to centre, whatever that might mean domestically, in terms of his foreign policy, it suggested that he would take a tougher stance regarding dealing with the Soviets. On April 13th, his first full day in office, he got a report from Statinius about the state of Soviet-American relations, and he said, "We must stand up to the Russians at this point. We must not be too easy with them."
1: And and he's making it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You're about to say something.
2: No. Go. Okay, you're fine.
1: Uh, no, just that. Um, um, Truman. For a lot, uh, and you have to give him credit for this. He was pretty forthright about his lack of knowledge, about his lack of experience. Um, but then he shoots himself in the foot and he decides that he's going to overcome his maybe insecurity, certainly his lack of uh, experience and knowledge by being decisive or at the very least appearing decisive. So I think he's going to have this kind of macho image. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to be my own man because who in the hell would want to have to come after FDR? I mean, you're talking about an impossible gig. And so he's going to want to be a straight shooter. Everybody is going to know where he stands. He's going to be tough, which was the exact opposite of uh, FDR. He was multi-layered. He was purposefully vague about things. You never knew when he was going to come. You never knew what he was going to do next. And so uh, just a different set of standards altogether, and but you you can pretend to be tough all you want, but if you have no idea of what you're talking about, if you have no idea the consequences of any of your decisions, you, you know that how can that not how can that not rattle you?
2: And I think this is the turning point of twentieth-century American politics, in many yes. ways. Absolutely. This whole I don't know what I'm doing, so I'll just act tough. Uh, Good for
1: Reagan, yeah.
2: I think that uh, yeah, Truman was the the progenitor of that stance, and you know he got acclaimed for many of the same things that P- Donald Trump supporters like Trump for. I think uh, sh- Truman was called a straight shooter. He was tough. He was decisive. He was a businessman, had a business background. uh, And, you know, people went for that. They dug it. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though, you know, he was not elected president, he uh, inherited the role on Mm -hmm. Roosevelt's death, but it helped during the last election. But even historians have... I can't think of words... Historians since then have praised Truman for this straight-talking decisiveness. Um, but I think it was a bad thing, and I think, generally speaking, it's been a bad thing for American politics. As you say, this losing this complexity and depth I- in favour of shallowness but with a tough exterior... Um, The great investigative journalist of the Cold War, I.F. Stone, Mm -hmm. in his book, The Truman Error, wrote, "There seeped out to the press in Mr. Truman's first days in the White House off the record accounts of frank sessions in which the little man bewailed the fate which had made him president. Mr. Truman's fears transmitted themselves to those around him and through him to the country, as Mr. Roosevelt's courage had done earlier. Toughness became a mask for weakness, and stubbornness a substitute for strength. Mr. Truman, who was really scared, launched the Get Tough policy. Mr. Roosevelt, who was really tough, did not need to proclaim that fact to the world. Right.
1: And and everything we've covered about Stalin so far, if you get in his face, whether you're really tough or you're faking it or whatever, it doesn't matter. You can imagine his response. And I, and I just <laughs> want to add on to something you said a second ago. When, when Truman gets praise in the history books years later, I think some of that comes from, the sources that they used. there were a lot of people in the State Department who weren't happy or let's be honest didn't quite understand what FDR was going for I think FDR was a realist and a pragmatist and he was doing the best he could but anyway so when when Truman comes along and he starts talking tough whether he means it or not is irrelevant these people in the State Department who want to hear this and they want to go along with this they uh, wholeheartedly support this new line that is going to be taken with Russia and it gives them a chance to vent out. And so years later, if if someone's reading their diary or if someone's interviewing them as old men to write a book about Truman, there's probably going to be a lot of very positive things said about this because this guy, Truman, was saying exactly what they felt was how Russia needed to be treated. And of course, we all know that Stalin is a completely cold-blooded person who has all the aces in his hands and he still has spies everywhere. He still has the Cambridge five. He's got he's got everything. He's got all the aces. He's not going to lose. And of course Truman's about to find out he's got the bomb. But the point is you don't play hardball with Stalin because for him that's a normal day at the office.
2: Yeah. I think um Truman's a really interesting character for a number of reasons. Uh for one, he is the first president of an America which is a, su- a global superpower. Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind that bef- point. before World War II, America was a regional power, but they weren't a global superpower. Coming out of World War II, America was the global superpower, really, militarily and economically. Right. Um, And Truman's the first president uh, in that era. So it's a very different landscape he finds himself in than Roosevelt did in 1933, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. On April 11th, two days before he died, uh, Roosevelt... Two days? One day before he died. Uh, The day before he died, Roosevelt had been working on his Jefferson Day address. Mm Mm-hmm. And he wrote the following lines in his own hand. The only limit... The only limit... Um, the only limit... No, I don't know my... I can't remember my Roosevelt voice. The only thing we have to fear... Uh, f- very good. The only limit to realisation of tomorrow... <laughs> that's terrible. ...will be our <laughs> doubts of today. Let me just do it in my voice because it's too important yeah, yeah, to fuck yeah. around with. It. Yeah. The only limit to our realisation of tomorrow will be our doubts of... Of today. Let us move forward with strong and active faith. Now, I.F. Stone, I don't think he's directly referencing that, but it sort of connected up in my mind when I was putting together my notes. Again, in his book, The Truman Era, he writes At home and abroad, faith was needed and faith was lacking. Coexistence with Russia and communism required faith, faith in capitalism, faith in free institutions, faith in their capacity to meet new problems and to compete successfully for men's loyalty against a revolutionary one-party dictatorship, faith in their ability to survive in a world which must henceforth be largely communist and socialist. Such faith was beyond these fearful men who governed by instilling fear rather than confidence. And the inevitable casualties were the philosophical assumptions which had lain for almost two centuries at the foundations of American life. These were secular, sceptical, democratic, and optimistic. They had bred distrust for the priest and contempt for the bureaucrat. They had developed a healthy suspicion of government and a lively irreverence about all dogma. They were reflected in separation of church and state, and respect for individual belief and conscience. They implied belief in the efficacy of reason, the essential goodness of man, and the ultimate victory of truth. The First Amendment, the cornerstone of the American constitutional system, rested on the assumption that since men were reasonable and good, they could be trusted to choose among freely competing ideas. American optimism and belief in social reform drew their strength from the happy conviction that men were made evil, rebellious, violent, or criminal only by the miseries of material circumstance, not by some mysterious and innate quality predestining them to damnation. Damn. Sorry. To improve man, one had only to improve his conditions. The corollaries affirmed the futility of force against human aspiration and new ideas, and asserted the indispensability of social amelioration and free discussion to a healthy and progressive society. In this, the Americans shared the modern Western tradition, shaped by the Dutch, English, French, and American revolutions, by the rise of modern science, and the successful revolt of against clerical authoritarianism all these faiths began to be shaken then more and more openly assailed as the momentum moved america further on the road toward the garrison state and war that's wow
1: i'm that's, sorry for my uh, premature
2: ejaculation Yes. That's one of my... It's one of the most powerful bits of writing uh, I've read in a long time. I, I think it... I, like. I totally, totally agree with that uh, perspective.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I've said this to you before on the show. Like, in my younger days, when I was, I don't know, my early 20s, and I was starting to get interested in history and, and politics... And I started thinking about uh, or reading about um, McCarthyism and the Cold War and the Red Scare and all those sorts of things. I remember thinking, uh, well, America is all about freedom of speech and freedom of thought and people having a democracy and choosing. Surely if the people wanted to choose a, a, a communist government or a socialist path forwards, that was their right Isn't that what America's all about? Isn't democracy and freedom what America stands for? This is in my naive early 20s. Uh, (laughs) I grew up watching Sesame Street. You know, I thought Big Bird had it all under control, man. Mr. Hooper uh, was the secret power behind everything. Right. Uh, It took me a long time to realize that, yeah, that's not really what's going on. And In fact, I think a large part of the rest of my adult life has been trying to answer that question. What's the difference between that uh, naive, idealistic view I had of America in my early 20s and what I read about in the history books? What what is the differential between those two?
1: Yeah. I don't know. Thinking the line of thought that says since America is free, if they wanted to vote in a communist government, they should have that. Right. It's like saying, can God make a rock so heavy that even God can't lift it? I mean, you would just think that somebody would come after somebody on the right would obviously fight if a bunch of people voted for communists. But again, um, if enough people in the United States voted in enough representatives, could it possibly happen? Would we change the laws? Would we change the constitution? I don't know. That is that is a circular argument that could give you a headache very quickly. Hey, real, real quick, what's your philosophy on homework? Should, should schools be giving out homework? <laughs> <laughs> the There's fu- a reason i ask. The fuck? What? There's a line from that thing about you you, you skip two classes and there's no Uh, homework. There's a big discussion in Heather's the kids' school right now about whether homework should be handed out.
2: Look, personally, I've got two boys that are just uh, finishing grade 12 in in the next month, and um, Mm -hmm. I I think the education system, at least here, that they've been through is um, totally broken and totally useless. Uh, Complete waste of the last 12 years of their life
1: damn Mm. so but when you say
2: that at least when there's
1: homework there's something that they're doing on their own they're trying to discover something they'll struggle they may succeed they may fall but they but they learn the process of figuring things out that's what i always thought homework was it was it's you and you're trying to do it on your own you can ask questions tomorrow but for right now it's just you and that's how you learn by by that process but none of the teachers that I talk to agree with me.
2: Ray, it's like me trying to get you to do your homework for the show. Right. I can I can berate... And I've tried. I've tried making fun of you. The audience has tried making fun of you. They've in their reviews. <laughs> I can berate I, yeah. you. I can take the piss. If you don't want to do it, if you're not interested, you're <laughs> not going to do it. You might fake it. You might... Are we talking about me right now? You might read stuff out of a book and make it sound like you actually had opened it before that very second. But right. no, I mean, it, it, look, yeah, I, I, I am increasingly a believer that the education system is broken. doesn't teach kids how to think. It may have some benefits in terms of sociali- socialization, but you could get that mm-hmm. in other ways. Um, yeah. just, just throw kids in a playground, you know, a couple of days a week and say, go play, forget the fucking education part of it. Yeah. Just go and They'll play. figure
1: it out. Yep. Yeah.
2: But <laughs> I think the education stuff is probably, we, we need to completely rethink education. Like I, I went for a bike ride with Taylor, um, the day before yesterday, Taylor's maybe 17 in a week or two. And, uh, he said to me, you know, honestly, I think I've learned more from you, dad, than I ever had from school just by Mm. our little chats by I I think I more of the knowledge that I have now that I think is useful I learned from just you and our conversations and what you've talked to me about over the years than what I've learned in school Uh, I don't think they've come out of school I don't well no I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back and I don't actually agree I think he's probably learned a lot more from school but in terms of the things that he at this point in time he thinks are practical Like, they're going to go study.
0: Yeah.
2: They're going to go to. Yeah. How to think. They're going to go and study business and marketing at uni next year, him and his twin brother. And they're like, well, shit, you're the marketing guru. So, you know, why should I go to college? What are we even going to learn? I go, well, just go, you know. You might change your mind once you're there. But, um, I, you know, I think kids learn best when they have a natural level of curiosity about something. And -hmm. particularly in this day and age. Okay, it was different in our era. If I became interested in something, if I didn't have a set of encyclopedias on my bookshelf, I I guess I could go to the library, but it was a big fucking effort. Kids now, if they go, shit, I wonder what the clitoris looks like. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Ten seconds, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. You know, you, you com. they know everything they need to know about the clitoris. Back in our day, it was a little bit harder. And I think our education system is still, in large part, stuck in a, a, a ah. 19th century model. And as I said to Taylor the other day, it's a 19th century model where the model was kids are bad, kids are trouble, kids mm-hmm. need to be whipped into shape and taught to be members of the... Uh, aristocracy or failing that good worker drones who can go out and uh, work in the Industrial Revolution um, it doesn't it's not set up to teach intellectual skills logic uh, rhetoric uh, the the ability to think outside of the box um, oh, it's yeah. just and 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 a large part because the Teachers, and I mean, look, I don't want to disrespect teachers out there. I'm sure we have teachers listening. And if you're listening to this show, you're in a different category already. So I'm, yeah. I'm not having a go at you. But I'm, I think most of you would agree, because I know teachers who would agree with this. The vast majority of people who become teachers do so because they can't really think of anything else to do or they can't make it uh, in the real world. Uh, as a scientist or as an historian or, or as whatever. So, as a marketer, mm-hmm. Taylor's been telling me, like, they've had business, they've been doing business in high school for the last couple of years. And he keeps saying, Our business teacher, I say, So, how many businesses have you run? None. Right. Oh, God. So, you've never, never run a business, but you're teaching me how to run a business. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, my dad has failed in more businesses than he can count. I mean, <laughs> go learn from him about how to fail in business. Uh, I said that today. That's that's what I want on my tombstone. Here lies Cameron <laughs> Riley. He was he came from nothing, <laughs> and he ended up with nothing.
1: But a life between, well lived. What a ride.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, where was I? Yeah, teachers and administrators and and ministers. They're not really intellectual savants. Most of them, they're not the great right. thinkers. We don't put the great thinkers in charge of education and teaching people how to think. We don't put. I mean, you got Salman Khan. I mean, I reckon Salman Khan and uh, the Khan Academy mm-hmm. is, is is probably one of the greatest things that's happened to education. Um, that should be it. A lot of a lot of high school, I think, should be right. Go watch Khan Academy, <laughs> and if you have any questions. Come to me. Otherwise, that's it. Just go listen to some. We'll Google it together. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I think I do think homework is not a not a good thing unless kids assign it to themselves.
1: Right, they're actually into it and will pursue it and learn it. So, so all of this was pretty much a segue to go. We have gone from FDR, who lived outside of the box, to Truman, who, not to be too rude to him, not to be too crude. Didn't even know he was in a box.
2: <laughs> oh, I think he knew he was in a box, but he thought the way to get out of the box was just to act tough.
0: Uh,
1: box! No, no box can hold me.
2: Uh. Now, Harriman left Moscow immediately after delivering the news to Stalin and rushed back to Washington to meet with Truman. He told Truman, frankly, one of the reasons that made me rush back to Washington was the fear that you did not understand as I had seen Roosevelt understand, that Stalin is breaking his agreements. He warned yes. Truman of a new barbarian invasion of Europe.
1: If, if we could just break down that sentence that I have seen, as I had seen Roosevelt understand, we all know that Roosevelt's getting frustrated with Stalin he's getting frustrated with the entire thing but at the same time he knows there's no other you can't just take your ball and go home there are no other teams you have to work it out with Stalin you have to mix it up you have to talk sometimes you'll get what you want sometimes you won't and even if you lose an entire country like Romania or Poland you might save one Uh, and and I'd be theoretical of course but the point like Germany but the point is there, there is no other option. There are, there are no, there are no other players with with Stalin's clout that's on the board. You can't just shut him down. You can't just see him as an, as an uh, an adversary. I think I think Harryman is doing a disservice to his leader, to his president, by pitching it in such a black and white view. Yes, he's getting frustrated. Yes, he's breaking his rules, but we've broken some with our percentage deals. I mean, it's not that black and white. But I think Truman is going to take that statement or a statement like that and run with it and see Stalin as nothing but an adversary, which is maybe what Harriman intended.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think what we're going to see over the course of the next few episodes is that Truman, who came into this job knowing very little, is going to take his advice from some of these guys, James Burns, Harryman, that were very antagonistic towards Stalin. He didn't really have anyone like a Hopkins advising him. Somebody who was more nuanced, no. more balanced, had the big picture in mind uh, that, look, the point of what we want to do here, Roosevelt's point was to prevent another world war. Yeah. If we end up with some countries in Eastern Europe that are being run in by the Soviets. That's uh, the lesser of two evils. Right. Um, and, and
1: you made the point earlier that... Um, shoot, it's gone now. You were making the point earlier, oh my God, what the hell was your point earlier? It is so freaking gone. Please take over until I think of this.
2: Well, I was just going to wrap up by saying... Within days of Roosevelt's death, Stalin decided to speed up his invasion of Berlin as much as possible. Mm. In fact, his attack on Berlin began on the 16th of April, one month earlier than the date he had given his allies at Yalta, only four days after Roosevelt died. Now, the Soviet forces had an overwhelming advantage in manpower and hardware, but it was still a brutal battle of more than 2 million soldiers that the Red Army and the Polish 2nd Army, who also took part in the Berlin operation, had between them. Mm -hmm. More than 360,000 were killed, wounded, or went missing in action.
1: Damn. That's the, a that's a colossal struggle within a major city. That's that's
2: staggering. The Germans were not going to give up Berlin easily.
1: Oh, I I did want to throw out that when Harriman is making these statements to Truman. Harriman was either on purpose or maybe not forgetting that there were many parts of Yalta, the agreement, that was vague. You could argue that Stalin was breaking agreements, but there was, a lot of, um, there was a lot of gray in there. So maybe he was just doing things according to his interpretation, but that is not how it is presented to Truman.
2: Exactly. Fifty Shades of Gray, which was the book that <laughs> Stalin wrote on his negotiating <laughs> tactics.
1: When he wasn't shredding on the guitar, he was writing erotica. Good for him. I mean, um, negotiations. (laughs) Negotiations.
2: All right. Well, let's leave it there. We'll come back next time with a mini bio on Harry S. Uh, No reviews again. Uh, Thanks, people. No more uh, heroes. Um, So... There you go, folks. We're feeling a little bit sad about yeah. that. But if you're listening to this, you are a hero, so there's nothing much you yeah. can do about it. I was going to it. say,
1: everybody, if you, if you hear our voices, you are heroes to us, so thank you.
2: But if you haven't written a review for the show yet... Then fuck you. Oh, sorry. Do us a favor. D-back, write us a review, and uh, we oh. will send you a... Token of our appreciation. We, I'll even design something new. Maybe you're like, ah, oh, that old, that old coffee mug thing. I'm done with that. We'll send you something new. Right. And, How about and a vagina cool.
1: with a circle and a line through it? I can't believe you
0: going me say that. An iron curtain has descended across the continent.